Hello and welcome to the TrueLogic DX Masterclass. This is a special podcast recording of TrueLogic's most anticipated SEO 101 seminar by one of the Philippines' pioneer SEO practitioners, Bernardson III. Have a listen. Okay, so thank you very much for joining us today. I'm not sure if you guys can see it, but you know I can sort of see you guys over here on a monitor, on a huge monitor over here. And we're going to be talking about SEO 101, the basics. And no SEO conversation, I think, gets off the right foot if you don't talk about the basics of how search engines work. So let's let's begin with an intro to SEO, right? Which is essentially an intro to search. So everybody's aware, right? This is this is Google. And not all websites with search functions are search engines. Like Google, Baidu, DuckDuckGo, Bing. These are search engines, right? Yahoo is not. Yahoo is a portal. It has a search engine, but it is not essentially a search engine. The business model is just different. MSN is not a search engine, right? It's also a portal. It's got Bing as its search engine. But what is a search engine? And the way I like to explain this is a search engine is really just a very, very, very powerful website with three main functions. And I I always want people to understand the fundamentals of these functions. And the fundamental function of a search engine is they crawl, they index, and they rank. To, To put that in layman's terms, what we mean is the, the search engines like to scan as much of the accessible internet as much as possible. So there are two keywords there in, in that phrase for crawl, right? Scan and accessible. Because just because search engines like to scan all of the internet does not mean they does not mean that they can. You as a person that owns a brand, owns a business, owns a website, actually do have the ability to control what a search engine is and is not able to scan in your site. But the act of scanning your website, whether it's Google, it's it's Bing, it's DuckDuckGo, it's Baidu, regardless of whichever search engine it is, the act of scanning the content on your website is called crawling. Okay? So it's a very important function and it's the first thing that a, that a search engine will do. The second function of the search engine is called indexing. And in layman's terms, indexing is about a search engine committing your website to memory. So remember, it scans the internet, right? Like all permissible pages, all pages that that it is allowed to scan, it will attempt to remember. It will not successfully remember everything, but you will rank, you will perform on search, not based off of what your website is on the internet. It will perform based off of what the search engine remembers of you on the internet. Does, Does that make sense? So... Google, when you do a Google search, have you guys ever noticed how Google returns a result in 0.02 seconds, 0.3 seconds, 0.45 seconds, 0.12 seconds? And have you have you guys ever wondered, like, how is it returning results that quickly? And the reason it's able to return results that quickly is because Google is not pulling results from the internet when you perform a Google search. It is pulling information from memory, right? And so you'll notice that Whenever you do, whenever you perform a search, and you know, when you do SEO, what you want to do is really appear on ranking, and everybody talks about ranking, ranking, ranking. But ranking is really just the third function of the internet, which is organizing all of the information that it has scanned, organizing all of the information that it remembers. So the process of ranking is just Google comparing your website to every other web page that it has scanned and remembered and then organizing them from most relevant to least relevant. Most of the activities that SEOs will do will be related to ranking. But indexing is not what makes you rank. Crawling is not what makes you rank. However, in order to rank, you must be indexed. And in order to index, you must be crawled, right? So yes, crawling is not a ranking factor. Yes, indexing is not a ranking factor. But if these two don't perform well, you will not rank at all. So those are the three primary basic functions of a search engine, the act of scanning your website, remembering your website, and ranking your website. Now, let's let's talk about that in a bit more detail. And so I'll take you to another slide, right? This is what you're looking at is a practical application of when we check 
whether Google can scan your website or not. And then I'll, I'll dive into a bit more technical details in a bit. But the easiest way to find out how many of your pages Google has scanned is with a tool called Google Search Console. But if that's not installed, one of the easiest ways to find out is by performing a search like this. This is called a site, a site search. So you put in site colon and then the domain of your website. And then Google will essentially tell you, oh, I have 675 of those pages, right? I remember 675 of those pages within that domain. And the reason this matters is if you have a website with, let's say, 20,000 products, but you're only seeing 100 results appear from a search like this, then that means Google is omitting all the several thousand products that you have out there, right? So this is one way to check that out. But when you want to check for the index, it doesn't just matter that you know your website appears a certain way to a user. The way your website appears is not necessarily how Google remembers it. And remember, Google does not rank you based off of what you think your website looks like. It ranks you based off of how it remembers your website to look. It ranks you based off of what content it remembers your website to have. So let me give you guys an example, right? So aside from you looking at what Google's memory of your website is, it's also called the cache, right? In order for you to, to, to check that out, or when you do that, you do a search for your website and then you click the ellipsis inside search. You're, you're seeing it as these three dots here. And if you click that, the option cached appears. And once you click that, Google gives you a result above the header that looks like this. Now, why does this matter? Because not only does it tell you not only will it show you what Google remembers your page to look like, it also tells you the date and time it last committed your website to memory, right? And if your website is going to stand a chance of appearing on the first page of results, you ideally want to see that as three days or less. In seven days or less, you're probably going to appear on the lower first page, second page, third page, sure. But if you're really after the traffic for a certain idea, you want that to, to be same day, two days, three days at best. So not only are you seeing what Google remembers of your website, you're also seeing the last time it committed your website to memory. So this is what happens when you check how Google remembers your, your web page. Now, here's a practical application of that, right? Like, let's take this as an example. This is the Ayala Mall's website. And this is what your browser and what your users can see. This is what everybody can see when it comes to as far as this website is, is concerned. But when I check it against what Google remembers, when I check Google's cache against the page, this is what Google sees, right? So there's a discrepancy, right? There's a discrepancy between what the users will see and there's a discrepancy between what Google remembers. And the problem with a situation like this is Google will attempt to rank you. Google will make you relevant based off of the content of its memory not the content that actually exists on your page. And so this practice is fairly important, right? Like just because you thought you did everything right does not necessarily mean you did. You do want to check, how does Google remember my web page? And this is one of the simplest ways to do that. Okay, so crawling and indexing. Let's, let's do a quick sweep of the technical SEO. So when you do technical SEO optimization, it addresses a couple of things. The first thing it addresses is, do you enable Google and other search engines to actually scan your website, right? Because there are elements in your website that can prevent Google from being able to successfully do this and other search engines. The other is technical SEO addresses indexing issues, meaning memory issues. Does Google remember the web page exactly as you prescribed it? Or does your web page appear one way to you? And then does it appear differently in the memory of the Google search engine in another, right? That's the other one. But the other things that are addressed in technical SEO are some of the quality issues that your websites might face. Like take, for example, core web vital issues or speed issues. The faster your website, the better your quality score. Another thing that it checks for is duplications. This is particularly notorious when websites have multiple countries and multiple languages. If you don't set, if you don't manage your duplication correctly, what you might wind up doing is your different languages and your different country versions might wind up cannibalizing traffic off of each other versus just versus being able to help each other out. Um, and then the last one is mobility, right? Because 
the search engine is a mobile first index now. And your likelihood of appearing on the first page is because your website is very mobile friendly compared to your competitors that might not be. So let's talk about what these things are, like in a nutshell, right? And because I'm going to try to keep this light and within two hours, which is not always easy when it comes to an SEO conversation. Let's talk about the robots.txt file. This is essentially a command to the bot, the crawler, even to browsers that tells them whether they are allowed into the premises of your website or not. So think of the robots.txt file as a set of instructions. And it says where you're allowed to enter in the premises and where you're not allowed to enter into the premises. So let's let's do this analogy. Let's pretend the bot, the, the crawler, the, the tool that Google uses to scan the website is a grab food delivery person. Like, let's pretend that that's, that that's what the bot is. The bot gets to the location, it finds the location, and now it has to deliver the food to your doorstep. You, you, your apartment, your condo unit, whatever, you are the web page that it has to find. If there are instructions right at the guardhouse that says all deliveries not allowed within premises, then immediately the bot can no longer go into the premises, much less find the building, much less find the unit, right? And that's what the robots.txt file says. Now, if the instructions say, okay, you're allowed to go past the guardhouse, but you're only allowed to leave it at the reception of the specific building, then that's another command inside your robots.txt file. Now, the bot is actually able to go into the compound, find the actual building, but not find the actual room where where it's allowed to drop off the delivery. Likewise, the robots.txt file might say, okay, you're allowed there, but you're only allowed up to the common area of that floor, and you're not allowed to go to the specific unit. But when there are no commands inside the robots.txt file, essentially, that grab food delivery, who is an analogy for our crawler here, can just go to the location, find the building, go to the necessary floor, find the unit number, ring the doorbell, and then hand the delivery over. Right. When you allow all, when you allow it all access, it's able to go, it's able to find the specific unit. That's what the robots.txt file does. Now, so that's the robot.txt file. It says where our crawler or our grab food delivery person in this case is allowed to go and where they're not allowed to go. Let's talk about what the sitemap is. And we'll use the same analogy, right? If this is the first time the grab food driver is delivering to this location, and then you said, it is building, it is 4S Sigma, right? Please deliver it to 4S Sigma, Capitol Hills Drive, Quezon City, let's say. It knows where Quezon City is, it knows where Capitol Hills Drive is, and then it finds, let's say, let's call it Capital Estates. It finds the Capital Estate location. There is no robot.dxt file that prevents it from being able to go to the location it needs, but at the guardhouse, Aside from it not being forbidden by a robots.txt file, the guard is nice enough to tell the grab food driver, okay, here's a map of the estate and the location you're looking for is here. The amount of time the grab food driver will now take to deliver it from guardhouse to your specific unit is probably cut in half. In short, it will find the location more efficiently because it doesn't have to ask the guard, hey, which building is that in? And is this does this go to the fourth floor? And when I get off the elevator, do I make a left or a right? It now just follows a map to get to the location more efficiently. That's what a sitemap does for the crawler. It allows you to prioritize which pages. If there are no instructions, and let's assume the buildings have no labels, the delivery driver literally has to go to the guard of one building and says, hey, is this this building? Is this this building? Is this this building? Does this person live here? Until it finds the right one and then says, okay, Where's the elevator to the fourth floor? It has to find the elevator. And then when it gets to the elevator, it takes a look at, does it flag a left or a right? And then it follows the, the room numbers until it finds the location it needs to get to. It's very inefficient. But if you don't have a sitemap, that is precisely that is precisely what the crawler bot goes through in order to make that delivery, right? So the sitemap doesn't necessarily make scanning or crawling possible. It just makes it more efficient. Now, let's talk about canonicals. And canonicals are related to duplication. Canonicals are just a way for you to indicate that the page is authoritative for its content. Like meaning, hey, you're just telling Google, hey, Google, the content I have on this page, I own it. It's not owned by any other page. I didn't rip it off any other website. It belongs to me. 
by default, a page canonicals to itself. By default, a page canonicals to itself. But canonicals are highly related to the duplication issue. Because where you have websites that serve multiple countries. So I'll give you guys an example. If you are a brand that, let's say, sells services. If you're a brand or you're a brand, let's say you sell shirts, right? You sell men's blue pastel shirt. Like, let's say this is what you sell. And you sell it in the Philippine market and you sell it in the Hong Kong market and then you sell it in the Singaporean market. And in order to be relevant in those locations, your website has a slash PH slash SG slash HK, let's say. And let's say your content in Hong Kong is in Cantonese or in Mandarin. So that blue pastel shirt for men, does it require a different description or is it the same blue pastel shirt, right? It probably is. So there's no need to create a unique description in Hong Kong or in Singapore or in the Philippines. But because you created a subfolder for each market, because let's say you might not be selling some items necessarily in Singapore and you're not necessarily selling some items in Hong Kong. And then some items might be available in those territories and not available in the Philippines, right? But because this specific item is being sold across all territories, you're likely to use the same description. You're likely to use the same content. You're likely to use the same image. When Google scans your website and finds all three pages, it is now bewildered. It's wondering, okay, which page actually owns the content for this blue shirt and which page actually owns that description, right? And it wants to know, where do I attribute ownership? Where do I attribute relevance to? Hong Kong, Singapore, or Philippines? When you tell the website, attribute authority to the Philippine domain. So attribute the authority to the Philippine domain, but share authority to the different versions. Now your three shirt pages are not cannibalizing each other for traffic. They are sharing authority. They're helping each other rank. And so those are that's what canonicals do. Right, The Philippine page says, hey, I own this content, but the slash SG page is my alternate and the slash Hong Kong page, those are my alternates. What what that essentially does is it allows those three product pages that have the same product to not compete against each other and to help each other out in terms of relevance. Now, what are redirects? I think a great example would be this, right? Where if I go to a specific page and I don't find what I need, it just creates for very bad user experiences. And so the right thing for a brand to do is, if you no longer serve that content, then at least route me to the next page that might be able to help me, right? So that's an example of when you do a redirect. It might be because an item is not in stock. It might be because you have retired that specific service. It might be because that blog is old. There's a ton of reasons why you might want to take down a page. But Before you decide that that page offers you no value, one of the things that you want to look at is, did anybody in the internet make noise about that page in the first place? Right? Did anybody make noise about that page? Because that means somebody on the internet is vouching for the content of your page. And if you just turn it off, you lose that vouch. So one of the things that you want to do is, A, you want to transfer that vouch over, ideally to the parent page of that page you're taking down. So that's one thing that you do. Two is you want to help facilitate the user's experience. You don't want them to have bummer experiences in your website. Another is you might have replaced the product with something newer, right? So there's no reason why you should not redirect that page over to either a similar article, a similar product, a similar service page, and so on and so forth. So that's why you use redirects. You don't want the users to have bummer experiences by winding up in a dead-end page, right? Essentially, that's a page that just says, nope, not here, can't help you, right? It doesn't really help the users. And Google takes that against you by saying, okay, so you don't really care about your users. I'll route my users to web pages that care about them. The next one is the page status. And why do you care about this? Let's use the grab driver analogy one more time. So the page status is something the server tells a user agent, a browser, a bot, right? Like, Before you ever get to interact with a website, your browser sends a ping to to the server of a website. And the website has to respond by saying, yep, I know where that is. Yes, I found that page. Or no, that page doesn't exist. And normally, the best, I would say, page status that you can have is called a 200. So a 200 status is the best because it means 
I found the page. A 200 status is essentially the grab driver seamlessly entering the estate, finding the building, going to the right floor, finding the unit, and hand-delivering the parcel over to the person he was looking for. That's, that's what's represented by a 200 message. Okay? Clear so far. So the next message that, you, that we want to see is a 300 message, whether it's 301, 302, whatever number happens after three, right? But essentially, you're looking for a 300 redirect. And what happens is the driver enters the estate, finds the building, finds the floor, finds the unit, knocks on the unit, and wants to hand over the parcel. But the person that answers the door says, oh, no, he's not here right now. He's at the neighbor two doors down. Right, But the bottom line is the user still finds the information they're looking for. There's, they still find the person and they still get to deliver the parcel. That's essentially what happens when you do a redirect. Now, what happens in a 400 server, 400 page status message? The grab driver, in this case, the user agent, goes to the estate, finds the building, finds the floor, and then goes to the unit. And when they go to the unit, the person that answers the door is, huh, there's nobody like that here. Right, like we don't know anybody like that. So they do find the unit. They just don't find the person they're looking for. Right, the person that answers the door says, "Oh, I don't know where that person is." They're not redirected. Essentially, the grab driver's adventure is over. It dead ends. Right now, the worst one is called a 500 status message, where the person goes to the estate, they find the building, and they realize, you know, the unit's not there. Even worse, in some cases, they go to the estate, and the estate is an empty plot of land. Right? There's nothing there. So 500, 500 error messages usually indicate server issues. That's what it usually talks about. So why does this matter? Because you don't want... Remember that Google scans web pages at different intervals, and it will rank you based off of what it remembers. If Google had scanned you at a point in time where your page had a 400 message or a 500 message, it will remember that, right? And remember, in a 400 error message, there is no content. So you're not relevant for anything. Google will attempt to rank you for a page that doesn't exist. And so your rankings will begin to decline. They won't drop, you know, like a bomb. Like you won't tank out like right away. But the, the more frequently Google sees you having 400 messages, 500 messages, it's an indicator of quality, like whether you care about your users or not. Because people that care about their users make sure that you know, you satisfy the motivator for the search. And if people can't get into the website or find the page, then you're not satisfying the motivation for the search. The next one is site speed. And site speed is significantly more complex now than it was before. Right today, we call it web core vitals. We take a look at how quickly the page will load. We take a look at how quickly people can interact with, with clickable elements in the page. And we take a look at, you know, whether the layout is funky X number of pages after the page has been rendered. All of those get looked at in terms of in terms of site speed, but the ideal is still about three seconds or less. You want your web page to load in three seconds or less. Normally, the winning strategy for this is to keep your web page sizes small. And the most common culprits for websites that don't meet a speed requirement tend to be: a) you're too cheap on your servers, right? B) you're very exaggerated on your image quality. You don't need a three MB image. Right? You're not going to post it on a billboard. You don't need an 8-megapixel image on your website. And so when you go overboard on the image quality, this tends to use up a lot of resources, especially on mobile. And then the last bit is, did you code it in a clunky way? Like, did you code your website in a, in a clunky way where things don't organize themselves properly? Things keep moving around, uh, even though the user has no interactions with the page, and, and so on and so forth. And there are certain ways... There are certain things that you can do to optimize for them. But when you're looking for them, that's what you're looking for. A website that loads slow, probably because the server is cheap or the images are too large, or probably because it uses plugins that it doesn't need. Right? You're looking for websites where you can interact with immediately, and they don't relay out themselves while you're interacting with the page. The elements don't move as you interact with the page. Okay, So that's what we check for when we say site speed. I addressed duplication earlier. And then the last one is mobility because it's a mobile-first index, right? Make sure your website is mobile-friendly or be ready to lose to a competitor whose website is. All right? Okay. So let's talk about content metrics because one of the reasons I like to bring up content is 
And I say this a lot. It is the single most powerful ranking factor. Content is the most single, most powerful ranking factor. Operating under the assumption Google can scan your website and operating under the assumption Google can remember your website. The primary indicator or of whether or not you are creating a quality experience of whether or not you are fulfilling a search motivation is in your content. I can't even stress enough like how important your content is to, to your users, to satisfying search motivations, and so on and so forth. So the way I like to do it is to summarize it against the screen that you're looking at, right? There are certain things that enable Google to understand what you're relevant for. Remember, Google scans, remembers, and organizes all the information on the internet in order of relevance. In order to know what's relevant and what's not relevant, it depends on what Google sees on the page. And some of the things that it looks at on the page that are influenced by your content, by the way, are the following things. So your URL, for example, right? Your URL, it's that thing on the address bar. Keep it very readable. Keep it readable. Don't use, don't use random numbers. Don't use symbols. Don't do alphanumerics. Keep it readable. And whenever you can insert, whenever you have an excuse to insert the keyword in the URL, do so, right? Because it's the first relevance indicator. If I had a page that I wanted to rank for the word SEO, Google's first clue that the page it's looking at is relevant for SEO is the word SEO appearing on the URL, right? The next one is the meta title. If I had a page and I wanted to declare to users, remember to users first, if I wanted to declare to users that this is my most relevant page for the SEO topic, then when users perform a search, the SEO word should appear in the meta title. The meta title is that blue thing. Actually, let me change the way I share the screen so that you guys can follow me on a browser. So you should be moving to a browser with me. And if I type in TrueLogic SEO service, right? I want to rank for the word SEO service. Then the word SEO and service has to appear on my meta title in my meta description, right? At, at least mostly my meta title. But the word SEO has to appear in my meta title. It has to appear in my, in my meta description. If it does not, then how does Google know you are relevant for that topic or not, right? So this is, this is the second thing you want to optimize for. Now, let's go back to the, let's go back to the presentation. So your URL, your meta title, Notice that I didn't say meta description, but the next one that I do indicate to be important is schema. Now, schema is not very straightforward. It's a way of coding your website where you're helping search engines. So this one's not for users. This is for search engines, but it's a way for you to help the search engine understand that that piece of content is important. The way I like to describe schema is like a spotlight on a stage. Right. So the way I like to describe schema is very much like a spotlight on a stage. There's this rule in the algorithm that content that appears to the top and to the left are more relevant than content that appears to the bottom. Right. So anything that appears at the top is more relevant than anything that appears on the bottom. But a piece of content might be relevant, even though it appears on the footer, even though it appears in the last hundred words, even though it appears in whatever section. Right. And what schema does is it sort of shines a spotlight in that section of your web page so that you can tell Google, hey, I know this doesn't appear to the top and to the left, but it's a pretty important piece of information. And those pieces of information might be products, might be business info, might be an address, might be FAQs. And it's, for, it's so that you can declare to Google, hey, this piece of information is very important to users. Now, why do you, wanna, why do you want the fuss and bother? of having to comply to something like schema. Let's, let's go practical. Let's go back to the browser again, right? And I'll perform a search. Let's say uh, a product. Let's, let's do a product. Let's go Sherry Old Man's Bracelet. Of course, Google Shopping, right? But this is not SEO. So not related to SEO. But look at this, right? Look at how Google displays this search. The reason Google displays it like this and it displays the image, right? Google is saying, hey, is this the product you're looking for? Are these the products you're looking for? So the reason Google does these 
is because these pages comply with what's called a product schema. Google understands that these pages represent products. And so it is serving you a search result that is enriched. So this is what we call a rich snippet, right? In, in, the, in the Lazada case, take look at this, right? Aside from the fact that it tells you how many items, it tells you the aggregate rating of the items, how many people cast a vote for that item, and so on and so forth. But the reason you're not seeing a standard meta title, meta description, text-only description is because Google understands the context of your search and it's feeding you a page, a product page that satisfies the motivation for that search, right? This, without product schema, the search result would not look like this. It would, it would just look like a plain meta title and meta description. Okay, it would look like something like this, all right? So let's move back. And, and it doesn't just apply to products, by the way. Let's, uh, let's do a different one. Uh, I'll try what is SEO, right? So Google's got an answer box. Uh, but I'm not seeing any FAQ snippets. But you see these results, right? People also ask. You see these? Google understands that the search that I just made is for is an informational search, right? And that's why it's not offering me a product, right? I'm not seeing a product image on the right and so on and so forth. But you see, it is showing me when I do this, Google is not answering my question. Google is giving me an answer from a third-party website. Right, And if I want to read more, I just have to click on the link. In order for Google to understand that you're providing information, there's a right way to provide, there, there's a right way to code for these kinds of information. So again, you can do it for locations, business information, products, flight details, like what events, right? All of those. So schema has a lot of uses. Um, and I think it's always ignored, but it's a very important contextual tool. So that's it for schema. The next one are breadcrumbs. I'll, let's go back to the search, right? And I'm wondering if you notice that when Google gives you a search result, let's do uh, digital marketing services, right? When Google gives you search results, notice that Google does not give you a URL anymore, right? In the old days, we used to see domain.com slash subfolder slash page, right? And today that's not the case. Google just gives you the breadcrumb. Uh, and so it's a question of, A, do you utilize breadcrumbs? That's one. And then two, when you do, do you use it to give users a clue in terms of what this page is relevant for, right? So in the case of the illustrated example, notice how level one, level two, level three, level four, like this is how the user got to that page. Right? It's a navigation trail. This is why it's called a breadcrumb, like Hansel and Gretel. But if you want the page to be relevant for an idea, then the keyword has to appear inside the breadcrumb. Now, before I talk about the H1 tag, I will talk about content again. Right? Remember how it is the most powerful ranking factor. And remember how I said earlier, content that appears to the top and to the left, but you know, mostly content that appears at the top, is more relevant than content that appears at the bottom. Google attributes more relevance to ideas that appear at the top of the page than ones that appear at the bottom. And what content appears more to the top of any page than your H1 tag? So if your content is your most powerful ranking factor, your H1 is your most powerful content. Now, and now you might say, you know, Bernard, we already know this. Why are you even talking about it? Because in, in several cases, I will say not most anymore, but still in several cases, I will see the H1 utilized as a styling device. I'll see it used in a banner. I'll see it deliver flavor text. I'll see it make a promise, but not have the keyword, which doesn't make sense, right? If your page is talking about marketing services, if your page is talking about men's shirts, if your page is talking about running shoes, then utilize the H1 to declare to your users that, hey, this page is about running shoes, right? Don't use an H2, don't use an H3. And just because the H1 is huge doesn't mean it has to stay that way. You can style it, but you know, I would say always make sure that you utilize the H1 as content. Don't use it as a design element. Okay, now what about the subheaders? Yes, they still matter, but they don't matter in terms of keyword utilization as much as they do with context with contextual relationships. So what do I mean by that? I mean, if I wanted a page to be relevant for Batman, 
then my H2s should say Gotham City, Robin, Batcave, Wayne Manor, Alfred, Batmobile, Joker, Bane, right? So if the and Google will understand, wait, those subtopics are related to the Batman topic, right? And so it understands that your page is contextually related to this one idea. Now, the next one is the keywords in the first hundred words. Does this still matter? And you know, my opinion is, and this is an opinion piece, yes, it does. Because if your page talks about running shoes, then why are you trying to be coy about it? Don't try to write a 400-word description for your product, right? Like, don't say introducing the evolution of athleticism, blah, 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 taking recreational running to the next level. And then at your 400 word, you say, our running shoes, right? That doesn't make sense. If you're, if the page is about running shoes, there's no excuse to not be able to say running shoes in the first hundred words, right? Now, why does that matter? Uh, because number five and number seven are directly related to number 10, right? So we're jumping a bit. They're directly related to number 10. What you're trying to make sure is that the idea you want to be relevant for, the keyword you want to be relevant for is present above the fold at the first immediate render of your page, right? So you want to make sure that you are relevant right on the first go. So if you followed five and if you followed seven, then number 10 should be true, okay? Now, the next one, going back to the H1 where I said content is the most powerful ranking factor, let's talk about number eight. Now, the reason I said greater than 1,500 words is because I said a perfectly optimized informational page. But the word count you ought to prescribe to your pages will, will need some common sense application. Normally, how we pick the number of words to apply on a page will depend on what Google's understanding is of the context of that page. And Google understands pages by whether it's a branded page or navigational is it an informational page? Is it a commercial page? Is it a transactional page? And word count does not always matter based off of the context of a page. I'll give you guys an example. If I typed in Boracay flight deals, right? If Google was smart, what kind of result would it give me? If I did Boracay flight deals, actually, let's instead of theory, let's do it, right? So if I wanted to do Boracay flight deals, Boracay flight deals. Ignore the ads because this is not SEO, right? This is SEM, which is a masterclass for a different day. But look at this. Cheap flights. I'm going to pages where I can already book, right? Google is directing me to pages where I can book my flight. Because it understands that when I do Boracay flight deals, I am that is a transactional query. I want to buy something. And Google understands that, so it puts me in pages where I am able to facilitate the transaction. In short, that's what satisfies the search motivation, right? When I type in Boracay flight deals. What would not satisfy my search motivation is if Google brought me to a 2,000-word blog where I can find the best flight deals for Boracay and how to book them, right? I'm looking for a flight deal. I'm not looking for a story of how to find the flight deals, so the word count matters. Now, the other thing that you want to do, if you want to know what the appropriate word count is, is if you type in the query, so let's do, uh, let's do fried chicken delivery. Fried chicken delivery, right? Take a look at the results that Google is giving us. So top three results. So Google is thinking, okay, this might be an informational query, right? And so it's, it's bringing me to yummy to a piece of content. And if I wanted to compete, if this is the way I wanted to compete, now I want to take a look at the word count of this page and attempt to match or beat it. Because this is number, the number one result, right? And so Google is assuming, okay, it might be an informational query. Now let's take a look at the next one. The next one is grab food, right? Where it's a transactional query. So Google understands the search that I just did might be informational in nature, might be commercial in nature because it's giving me this commercial result. The next one it's giving me is also another commercial result. It's driving me to a commercial page where I can do the transaction. So with the exception of Yummy being an informational page, Google seems to understand that 
the query can be both transactional and informational in nature. Now, what will determine how Google eventually decides whether this is a transactional or informational keyword? And, and it's simple, your clicks. If users wind up clicking transactional pages versus informational pages, then Google will say, okay, you know what? Most people that click this query are looking for a transaction that is there for a transactional keyword, therefore transactional pages will rank. And it can change all the time, by the way. Just because Google decides this is a, transa- a transactionally intentioned keyword today does not mean it will remain a transactionally intentioned keyword 10 days from now. Google is always judging the context of a query based off of how users behave in search. All right, so this is just an example. So the, the volume of content that we recommend would be A, compete with your competitors, right? But typically, the, the word count of a product page can be anywhere between 50 to 100 words, right? What matters is that it's original. If, if, it's, a, if it's a transactional page, if it's a product page, though, there is one do not. And the do not is don't just publish the distributor or the manufacturer provided content, right? So normally, if you're a retailer, distributors and manufacturers give you the description of the product. Don't just upload that because chances are, A, you're not the first retailer and B, you're probably publishing duplicate content. Somebody else might have published that before you. And remember, Google scans the whole internet, right? So it will know that somebody else published that piece of content, that specific product description before you did. So it's not so much the word count on product pages as it is the uniqueness of the content. Now, in commercially intentioned pages, try to engage your user for at least about 30 seconds. And this is where I'll probably go 30 to 500 words. But what really matters in a commercial piece of content is, are you pulling on the emotional consideration of your users? Are you, is it a piece of content that, yes, utilizes the keyword, but B, solves the problem of the user? Remember, commercial content is made to fill a need, solve a problem, ease a friction, or help address an opportunity, right? So when you craft your content, sure, be mindful of the keyword, but first things first, fulfill the problem, the friction, or the opportunity of the user. That's what you want to use your commercial your commercial word count for. And then for informational content, yes, go bonkers. Go 1,000 words, go 2,000 words. Uh, why? Because that's what Google ranks currently, and, and that's it. Now, a lot of things that I think people are still missing, this used to be best practices all the time, but not anymore. I'm not seeing this practiced a lot, is people seem to have forgotten to put a tag on the image that they utilize. But remember, an image is content, and you can relate an image to a keyword. If you don't use that, you're missing out on a relevance opportunity, right? So, and it doesn't take five minutes, 10 minutes to add a label to an image, right? And the alt tag, by the way, is what happens when you mouse over an image and then a little box appears with words on it. That's the alt tag. You can utilize that as a relevant signal by inserting the keyword in the image, okay? When I say insert the keyword in the image, I don't mean overlay text on your image. That doesn't help, right? If a word is an image, Google doesn't understand that. Okay, the next one is, we already talked about 10. But we are going to talk about number 11. And number 11 is a relevant link. What does that mean? So let's go back to the TrueLogic website. Let's talk about the TrueLogic website again. If I'm declaring that this page is the most important page about the SEO topic for me, then every time I say SEO anywhere on my website, I ought to point to that page, right? Like if I'm being thoughtful to my users, let's say I put them in a digital marketing strategies for 2021. Like let's say they're reading that page and then we're telling them, Use SEO, use AdWords, use social media, use EDMs, make sure you have a website. But if I said SEO there and the user wants to learn more, then I'm actually helping my user by pointing them into my SEO page. But you see, if I link that SEO page to another page, then what I'm doing is I'm confusing Google and I'm confusing users about which page of mine is most relevant for the SEO topic, right? And so an inbound link, a vouch coming from your own pages where you're telling Google, hey, that's my most important page for SEO, right? The moment you do that, the moment that page receives an inner link, Google begins to understand, oh, okay. And in this page, he talked about, he said SEO and pointed to this page. And Google begins to understand every time you talk about that topic, you point back to that page, right? So every time you have an opportunity or an excuse 
to link back to a page where you can create a better experience for a user to read more. Make sure you always point them consistently to the same page. Don't make your pages fight for relevance against each other, right? Have one SEO page that's relevant for that. Have one page for men's blue pastel shirts. Have one page for sports pullover. Have one page for Bluetooth mouse, like whatever the case is, right? But whenever you talk about it, make sure you point an inner link back. The next one are, you know, engagement signals when you use it. Engagement signals are when people leave blog comments. If you're e-commerce, they are product reviews, user comments on that specific product. Why do they matter? At the minimum, it's because it triggers an element called freshness. Whenever your users interact with a page and add to the content of a page, Google becomes encouraged to rescan, recrawl the page. And remember, your crawl frequency, your, your caching frequency matters because if you want to be on the first page, you want Google to visit you every day, every two days, every three days, but probably not every 10 days, every 30 days, right? But remember that engagement signals only matter in your page. If it's happening in Facebook, Google doesn't see that, right? Google doesn't see that the content on this page got liked. It doesn't see that. It only sees the stuff that happens on your site. Um, the last bit, of course, is mobile friendliness, you know, for no-brainer reasons that I've already explained. Now, before I leave this slide, one of the most important things that I will tell you about is that not all metrics are created equal. Not all of these are created equal. Some of them matter more than others. And these items that I highlight in green matter more than the others. They have a higher influence on the relevance of your, on the relevance of your page. Okay. So these are the ones that matter more than the others. Okay, next, let's talk about content metrics. When uh, I remember in 2018, we did an event, I think at Century City Mall, and I, I talked about content and the takeaway from that conversation was, don't just write content because your boss told you so, right? When you produce content, you have to have an objective in mind, like whether it's a marketing metric or not, like, but, but have a goal in mind. Is it, to get, is it to acquire users? Is it to be relevant to an idea? Is it to drive traffic? Is it to refer traffic to a service page? But why are you creating content? Is it to, to create enticing descriptions of your products? Why are you creating content? And don't just produce content because it's on your task list or, or whatnot, right? It's on your content calendar. That's not why you produce content. But when you produce content, it has to have the ability to influence the metrics that you're seeing on your screen. It has, to be, it has to have the ability, great content has the ability to improve your search visibility, your rankings, your search share, your impressions, your click-through rate, the number of visitors you drive into your website, the number of sessions you drive, how many pages they'll view at every visit, uh, how many people will find the experience irrelevant, uh, and how long they stay engaged and relevant on your page. And then, you know, ultimately, if your content is really good, you'll convert them. So what do these metrics mean? And I won't dive too long into these. So I'll make it a bit fast. So search visibility. Search visibility is just the number of mentions on the first page of search that, that you've got, right? Like So rankings are how high up you are in the first page of the search result. Those are, those are rankings. But search visibility is what if you're ranking for one keyword, you're ranking. But you're ranking for one keyword, right? It's a different story when you're ranking for 1,000 ideas, 2,000 ideas, which is what your search visibility is. The next one is your search share. Search share is really just the amount of space you occupy on a search result. So let me show you what I mean. Let me change the way I share. And if I do this, right, I type in my brand name, not the domain, just the brand name. You'll get my ad. This is not SEO, right? This is AdWords. I'm just protecting my brand equity. But you'll get my brand. You'll see my knowledge graph. Hmm, you're not seeing the map result. You're seeing my organic result, right? You're seeing our site links. You're seeing videos about us. You're seeing our LinkedIn page, our Facebook page. And so essentially, whenever, except for that one, that weird one, almost everything you're seeing on the first page is us, right? But this is what I mean when I say search share. Uh, if I did SEO company, let me see. Right. So add, 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 which is still, which is still, ad, which is still real estate. Right. 
But notice that I also appear on the snack pack. I might not appear. I don't appear on the knowledge graph because it's not appearing. But notice that I appear on the snack pack, right? The local result. And I appear on the organic result, right? So terrific. By the way, I didn't expect that this is where I would find it. So my team's doing a great job. Yay. Yay, team. <laughs> Yay, team. Okay. Anyway, so that's what that metric means. So the next one is the number of impressions. These are the number of times Google offers your website, your domain, your pages as a result to a search, right? And so the higher that number, the more opportunities for you to gain traffic. The other one is what is the click-through rate of your website? Out of all of the times Google offers you as a search result, how many times do people click on you? And there is a golden number to hit. You ideally want to be at 3% or better, right? If you're not at 3% or better, you want to go back to the content optimization we looked at earlier, and you want to look at your meta title and your meta description, because those two things are, are CTR improving strategies. The next one is, of course, if your content is great, the number of visitors, if, you're, if your content is great, you should rank. And if you rank, the number of your visitors should increase, right? But you don't only just want thousands of visitors. It's a different story when you've got one visitor looking at one category page and seven products, and then one user seeing one category page and then exiting, or one user seeing one product page and then exiting, right? So you also want to take a look at, are you managing to entice your users to look at your other products, to look at your other services, to look at related products? And so the number of page views matter. You ideally want this, you know, over one. If you're only driving them to one page and then they're leaving, then that means the content's not very terrific. The number of page views greater than one, the number, the bounce rate, meaning the number of people that wind up on the page and consider the experience irrelevant. Ideally, you want to get it to less than 25. That's actually a very high bar to cross, but you do want to get it to below 25. And then you want your users to dwell in your domain for, you know, greater than a minute. Greater than two minutes is actually pretty good, but you want them to dwell at least greater than a minute, especially if you're going to drive more than one page view for every session, right? And if your content is really good, you ought to be, you ought to be able to gain permission to sell or to market to them, all right? So why optimize your web pages? Because you want your users to stay longer on your website, because if they're staying longer on your website, it's an indicator that they are having at least an acceptable, if not good experience. And the more of those you have, the more opportunities you have to convert that audience into a lead and the opportunity to convert that lead into a customer. All right? So why all the drama about SEO? Because SEO hits your whole sales funnel, right? It can address awareness motivations. It can, it can address discovery motivations. It can address consideration motivations. It can address conversion motivations. Retention, not so much. But with the rest, it has the ability to do that. It has the ability to help you move your customers down your sales funnel. It has the ability to help you get people from awareness experiences with you to discovery experiences with you, to preferential experiences with you, to permission to market and sell to them, which is what happens when you acquire a lead. You get somebody's permission to sell or to market to them, all the way to actually driving a conversion to your site. This is what, SE, what your SEO is supposed to do. Thank you for listening to part one of the True Logic DX Masterclass SEO 101. Stay tuned for the second part coming right next.